Hello, my name's Michael Crick. Welcome to Mugshots, the podcast where we paint portraits of movers and shakers, delving into their backgrounds, their motivations, their paradoxes, and their aims for the future. And this week, we look at the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner, one of the most fascinating people in British politics. She comes from a very deprived background. She was pregnant at 15, left school at 16, and never went to university. And yet, on current trends, Rayner looks set to become Deputy Prime Minister in the next year or so, and could one day secure the very top job. Joining me for this episode are Jerry Scott, political reporter for The Times. Hello, Jerry. Hi, Michael. And Andrew Fisher, who got to know Angela Rayner very well as head of policy for the Labour Party during the Jeremy Corbyn years. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. We'll also be hearing from those who knew her in her early years, both personally and politically. So who is Angela Rayner? She was born... Angela Bowen in Stockport, just south of Manchester, in March 1980. She grew up on the Bridge Hall Estate, a triangular-shaped community wedged between two railway lines, not far from Stockport County football ground. And in the 80s and 90s, when Rayner was a girl, Bridge Hall was known as one of the roughest and poorest council estates in Britain. And her family household was chaotic. They had no money and depended on clothes from charity shops. Her mother, Lynn, had mental health problems and made several suicide attempts. Angela said her father was very shouty and very scary. Her parents, she says, gave her no hugs or kisses. The family couldn't even afford hot water. So, on Sundays, she went to her grandma's flat along with the rest of the family to have a bath. Because her mother couldn't read or write, Angela said she once served the family dog food because she couldn't read the label on the tin. A neighbour on the Bridge Hall estate was Elise Wilson, who also went into Labour politics and is now the leader of the Labour group on Stockport Council. I spoke to her recently. There wasn't a lot of money. Nobody on Bridge Hall had a lot of money. To be fair, it was difficult for all of us. But for her family, it was it was particularly challenging. And I think back then we had a council estate that was undergoing significant issues. We had a lot of antisocial behaviour, disenchantment, I guess. In fact, I think um, Tony Blair, when Tony Blair got into government, he did a there was this whole thing about how the worst council estates in Britain, and they did the filming, I think it was the BBC did the filming for it on Bridge Isle Estate. Um, back then, it wasn't unusual to see burnt out vehicles or other identifiers on markers of antisocial behaviour around the estate. And that was what life was like back then. I think for her particularly, it was always challenging around those conversations about choosing food or electric or or to heat the home and how you're going to clothe yourselves and I think there was lots and lots of parents and Angela's was no different that were having to make those difficult choices. And what evidence did you see of that in Angela's case? Well my parents had the post office on the estate so we basically saw everybody and Angela's family like everyone else, um, regularly used the post office. It was both a convenience store, you know, with pints of milk, things like that, but it also you get your benefits paid. And so we regularly had 
um, all kinds of people come in. Angela's family was no different. And I think she said on numerous occasions, you know, to go and get a gyro. Back then it was gyros and you had like paper books with like dockets on it and you went to the post office and they stamped it and um, tore out the strip and then paid out the money. And then you had these milk tokens Angela had a um, Ryan when she was quite young and she was eligible for milk tokens and milk tokens were one of those things that you had to remember on top of your benefits. So you'd go, you'd, you'd take your benefit book or your gyro uh, to get your money, but you had to remember the, the, the milk token on top. And yeah, Angela was, I wasn't going to say forgetful, but you know, it, there was times when you'd have to chase her and go, and you forgot your milk token, come back, you know, she, it, it was a it was a whole new world, and it's quite complicated managing your money at the best of times. But managing it when you're on such a tight budget, I think, um, is a particular set of challenges. And you remember there were there were occasions when the family just didn't have enough to eat. Yeah, and I know for many many people that's a slightly unbelievable thing to say. Um, I think there'll be there'll be many people that think mm, that's unlikely. But I can assure you that that was the absolute truth of the situation. And it isn't something that I would say was particularly special for Ange. These were There were lots of people in that position. And on our estate, there was a lot of people in that position. I remember her knocking around and uh, with her friends and stuff and then them going in for lunch or them going in for their dinner. And she'd be sat outside, you know, on the pavement or on the park waiting for them to come back out because she wasn't going home for dinner. Why not? There was no dinner. Elise Wilson. Angela left school at 16 when she got pregnant with her first son, Ryan, and her father threw her out of the family home. She found a flat, studied for an NVQ2 in social care at the local college, then got a job as a care worker with Stockport Council. She joined the trade union Unison and was elected a shop steward the very same day. By her early 20s, she was full-time assistant secretary of a Unison branch with 4,500 council staff. Andy Verday observed Rayner closely during his time as Labour leader on the council. She was a very, very good uh, advocate. You've got to bear in mind, this is a lady that represented uh, people without any... She didn't have any formal training, so whatever she had, she had to teach herself. And she was probably doing two or three cases a day. And the odd time that I chaired a panel that she appeared before, represented members, she was uh, completely briefed on... everything to do with the case. I very rarely saw a look at notes. And that's quite some feat. You're doing two or three cases. I mean, a lawyer would only do two, a couple of cases a day, if that. But she was doing, I can guarantee, two or three cases a day. She was at it uh, really well. She was a highly accomplished advocate. Uh, but, of course, she had no idea uh, where she was going to go. She, that's what she was doing. She was, she was working as hard as she could for the union members that she represented. And so she must have spent hours then talking to the member she was representing and reading through all the paperwork and making sure that she could remember it all. I don't, I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she did it. She must have spent hours and hours of her time, uh, as well as running a house, which she did, with, uh, with uh, two uh, small children, two small boys at, the same, uh, at that time. Uh, and she, uh, she managed to do it with, with a plum. People used to say, you have to watch out. If, she, if Angela Rayner's got a war paint on, Watch it. 
because she was very, very good. She was good at what she did. Very good at what she did. So if you were uh, up for murder, you'd yeah. want uh, Angela Rayner as your... You'd, your want, you'd, you'd, you'd want somebody like Angela. Uh, she, she, she didn't miss a trick. She knew procedures. She knew... Uh, the, the, the important thing, she knew the case very well. And uh, if you came in and you weren't as briefed as she were, she was, then you'd be in trouble. You'd be in trouble. And what uh, sort of cases were these? Mainly disciplinary cases or um, reviews uh, sometimes for, for, um, for, for, uh, for wage increases and things like that, or grade, grade increases in a lot of cases. Um, a lot of them were grievances that would, you know, that somebody had with their uh, with the line management. But I would only deal with it when they were disciplinary cases. And she was—that's what I say. She was, uh, she was, she she was noted uh, for being very thorough and, and and extremely professional. That was Angela. Andy Viday there. In 2014, with backing from Unison and other trades unions, Rayner was picked as Labour candidate for the nearby safe seat of Ashton-under-Lyne and elected an MP the following year. Once at Westminster, her rise was rapid. With her ginger hair, outlandish shoes and quick wit, she soon stood out. The woman who came from a chaotic home thrived in what was then a highly chaotic party. And when, after the 2016 EU referendum, most of Jeremy Corbyn's front bench resigned in an attempted coup, she was one of only 18 Labour MPs to back him. When the coup failed, Corbyn rewarded Rayner with a place in the Shadow Cabinet, covering education. She became a strong Commons performer, good at discomforting ministers. In 2020, that led to her election as Keir Starmer's deputy, when she gained twice as many votes as her nearest rival. Now, with me is Andrew Fisher, um, you were head of policy for the Labour Party when Angela Rayner was in the shadow cabinet. I mean, what was she like in those days? What was she like as a performer and as a policy wonk yourself? What was she like policy wise? She was always on top of her brief. Whatever she was doing, she would do it diligently and seriously. She took it you know, very seriously. She wasn't there as a kind of hobby. She wasn't doing it to kind of, you know, tread water and just do the minimum to get away with it, which, I, you know, there are always a number of time-serving politicians in any uh, shadow cabinet. So it's the, it's the Angela Rayner that Andy Viday describes. Absolutely. No, I mean, I recognise that totally. And she is, I think a lot of people underestimate her, and that's a combination, I think, of, of sexism, of a kind of class prejudice, and, and you know, her relative youth as well, and inexperience at the time. As a politician, she'd only been in the Commons since 2015, and within a year... Uh, or just over, she was in the shadow cabinet with a fairly senior brief in education. She was always on top of that. She was always interested in policy ideas, arguing why do it that way when not this? Why is there this money for this and not why aren't we putting more money here? She was on top of the whole brief. And it's quite a, a broad brief because it goes from everything from kind of early years, sure start, that kind of thing, right up to university education and lifelong learning college skills for people later in life who change careers so it's a huge brief quite complex and she was she was on top of it all from day one and knew what she wanted to do very driven what are her politics i mean uh you know she was one of the few mps to back corbyn she then backed Re rebecca long bailey the left-wing candidate for the leadership you're you're uh, uh, on the left do you regard her as, as one of yours she's a socialist certainly um i think she's um pragmatic though and I think she is doing for Keir Starmer what she did for Jeremy Corbyn which is working pragmatically with the leadership that's been elected you know so I think 
she will um, be loyal. She will fight her corner, as I think she has on a number of occasions where she's been under attack from some of the people around Keir Starmer, probably as much as Starmer himself, defend her policy agenda, defend her position. And she'll do that doggedly. I mean, you know, again, don't underestimate her. But there must but be she, those she, on the left mm. who feel she's oh. she's selling out. Yeah, there definitely is. There definitely is. And I think that is something you, know, you talked about uh, earlier, her being a future leadership contender. There is that question mark, I think, over where her base is now. To run for the leadership, you need to have a solid base. And if you're on the right of the party, you've got that solid base at the moment within the Labour Party. She's not there. And that wing of the party don't trust her, even though she's been relatively loyal to Keir Starmer, I think. And there's obviously, as you say, there are some on the left who don't trust her because she is working closely with Keir Starmer. But if you look at the policy agenda she's advancing around work, around extra workers' rights and trade union rights, she's you know fighting for socialist policies within that shadow cabinet. And you can see a number of internal battles. She's not the only one doing that. Obviously, you know Louise Haig in transport has won the case on public ownership of rail, pretty much the only sort of case for public ownership that's uh, been retained under Keir Starmer. There are those internal battles going on, and I think she's um, probably the best person to be having those from the left in that regard. Let me turn to Jerry Scott, who's uh, joining us down the line. She's a, a political reporter for The Times. Jerry, do Conservatives still deride Angela Rayner, or do they fear her? I think they fear her. If you look at a lot of the um, showdowns that she's had in the Commons, I mean, I always look forward to it when it's deputy PMQs, and she's had to take on Dominic Raab across the dispatch box, especially in um, recent months where... You know, there's been questions over um, his integrity and his behaviour. She's very, very hot on that standard stuff. So whilst the Tories have been embroiled in this kind of, you know, return to Tory sleaze and the nasty party, I really think she's been able to be on the front foot making that charge. She's a great performer, whether it's in the Commons. You know, I've been to a good few of her speeches at this stage. They're very engaging. Um, I rarely see her do kind of, you know, the morning round or that kind of broadcast round. But she does do big set piece interviews, um, which I always think give a really fascinating insight into her background and and her character. I think the Tories still fear her. Um, I think they respect her as well, actually. Um, I think she's a fascinating character. Although in the early days, there was a lot of snobbery, as Andrew has said, about, particularly, I think, over the fact, over her, you know, northern accent, and uh, the fact she didn't go to university like most politicians have done. Yeah, I think that's true in the early days. But I think and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to kind of look at the journey the Conservative Party has been on as well. If you look at those seats that they took off Labour in 2019, I was working in Yorkshire for the Yorkshire Post at the time. So I was in a lot of those battleground seats i think the party as we've all discussed a million times really took a turn towards that former red wall and it meant they couldn't be as snobby and dismissive as they maybe used to be to like you say people with accents because half of their majority is now people with a northern accent so i think that definitely changed things the way that the conservatives has changed has actually been somewhat of a benefit to angela rayner as well because it's meant that the party can't necessarily kind of hit her with the stick they might have done in the past. Of course, she did get into trouble at the Labour conference a while ago uh, when she denounced Conservatives or some Conservatives 
as scum. Let's take a listen. You cannot get any worse than a bunch of scum, homophobic, racist, Jerry, that didn't go down too well with Starmer's office, did it? No, no, you're right, it didn't. And Michael, you'll know just as well as I do at these conferences. I was at that conference and just happened to be at a different drinks reception. You can never be at all of them at once. And a uh, you know a, a, a friend of mine uh, texted me and said, "Have you seen what Angela Rayner said?" And I said, "No, no, no," and rushed over and had to file. So it's absolutely manic. But no, it didn't go down well. And I think this is one of the places where Angelina butts heads with Keir Starmer quite often because she is very passionate. She is a firebrand. She really does have those views. And, you know, when I think it shows a bit of, I wouldn't use the word naivety because I don't think she's naive, but unguardedness in situations where maybe she forgets that things might be recorded or sent round to lobby journalists like me and that kind of thing. Because, you know, that was a private reception, albeit at Labour Party conference. Um, she probably thought, I don't know, that she was speaking amongst friends, and I'm sure she was, but these things are often recorded and get out. So I think, you know, that's an example of a, of a perhaps, yeah, unguardedness, which is both a massive strength, but can see you in a, a encounter pitfalls like that one. So, Andrew, is there a certain part of the electorate that actually the word scum will resonate with? I'm not sure there's a part of the electorate. It was a it was a party conference speech and there's a part of the Labour base that is, like Angela, viscerally hostile to the Tories and will therefore lap that sort of thing up in the right setting. But no, it probably doesn't win over anyone who's not already convinced. I mean, I can imagine it would have put off perhaps some of uh, the increasing numbers of middle-class voters that Labour is attracting these days. But then Angela Rayner actually said that that's, what, that's a word that people used in the working-class community that she came from, which I imagine may have annoyed you know, quite a few working-class people who say, well, actually, no, we, we don't use words like scum. But, I mean, the remarkable thing, Andrew Fisher, is that there she is, right at the top of British politics. Mm. And as I was saying earlier, it's hard to think of anybody who's, who has got such a background of, of deprivation and, and hardship as she has. Yeah, I mean, I think you probably have to go back a couple of generations to find a, a comparable figure. And, and the one that springs to mind, especially with the clip you just played, of course, is Anaren Bevan, who in 1948, I think, did that speech, which is remembered purely for the insult he used, which is, to me, they're lower than vermin. But actually what Nye Bevan was saying in that speech is how his kind of visceral experiences in the 1920s and 30s, and of course he worked down the mines as a 12 or 13-year-old, shaped his politics. And I think for Angela, it's visceral like that as well. She does dislike the Tories. This is you know, part of what drives her into politics is she knows what she experienced and she puts that down to the Thatcher and major governments. And you know, to a large degree, that's true. And that's what Bevan was talking about. You know, this is the Tories who condemned a generation of, of good people to semi-starvation, I think he says in that same speech. And of course, that's forgotten. But that's the context. And I think in a sense, there's a, there's a sort of parallel there. Now, Jerry Scott, you're probably closer to the Starmer regime than either Andrew or I are these days. What is her relationship like with Starmer? One gets the impression it's pretty poor. 
Well, I think they kind of rub along as kind of un- unnatural bedfellows, if if I can put it that way. I think they both have, you know, their own their own strengths that play along, and they do butt heads. Um, just it's it's interesting what you say about the background because I think they clearly have very different backgrounds and have ended up in a similar place of politics. I wouldn't say the same, obviously, for all the reasons we've discussed, but at least a similar place that they're in the in the same party but you also see that across the whole spectrum i mean i i i've spoken with angela before because i am the product of a single parent family who grew up on benefits and was on free school meals as well and you often don't get that in the lobby either and i think it gives you a certain amount of skill to speak to people and i think that is a uh, strength that she has very very strongly and that connects to people i don't think keir starmer always has that strength he because he's a bit more you know has that professional image is a bit more standoffish a bit more maybe professional and I think she fills in that gap so in terms of her relationship with Keir Starmer I think that they both recognize those strengths and weaknesses where that will potentially come unstuck is that the closer Labour get to power Starmer and those around him will start to consider whether that is conducive to a operation in number 10 and whether they can continue having these these fights at the moment it seems like they rub along pretty well um but whether that'll continue remains to be seen and on this whole issue of principles against pragmatism this is what angela reina herself had to say when she was interviewed by beth rigby on sky news on the 13th of january It's not about getting rid of my principles. I believe in my principles and I continue to. But, you know, when I was a free school meals kid, principles would not have fed me. It was the free school meals programme that the Labour government brought in. When I was a a mum at 16, it was the Sure Start Webster Stratton programme that Labour brought in that was able to help me to become a a good mum and to look after my son. Isn't there a danger, Andrew, from from Rayner's point of view, that she'll be a bit like John Prescott was under Tony Blair, that he's a sort of, you know, a, a, a working class totem up front window dressing and that Prescott never had a really close, you know, he wasn't involved, he wasn't an intimate member of the, the Blair regime, although he had important ministerial roles, that, that she'll be inevitably she has been or, or will be sidelined. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, Prescott, of course, had that super department to begin with. So yeah. he wasn't sidelined entirely. Um, but no, he wasn't part of the inner circle of Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair and Gordon and, and the others. I'm not sure whether she'll play that role, but certainly she could. And I think for her, she didn't come into politics as a game. She doesn't see it as some sort of game. She's not. But really what I'm saying is, is there a danger she should be exploited, really? Yeah, we've got, here's it, we've got working class Angela, everybody give her a clap. The rest of us are all middle class, of course. And, uh, you know, but she she's not that important. She's window dressing. I don't think she's the sort of wallflower who will allow herself to be put in the corner, uh, frankly. And I think as well, she's got a policy agenda to defend. The, the New Deal for Working People, as it's called, the document that her and Andy MacDonald, who since left, of course, the shadow cabinet, um, produced. I think she will defend that to the death and fight for that. I think there's a number of other areas that she's passionate about, obviously, as a former care worker herself. You know, I think she's very keen to get uh, better pay and better settlement for care workers. And some of what she's talking about around workers' rights plays into that because it's bringing back what we would know as a form of sectoral collective bargaining. I think they've called it fair pay agreements, which is an attempt to modernise that term. She has an agenda that she'll want to push. I think as long as that doesn't get sidelined, I think she'll be content. I don't think she needs to be necessarily in the in the foreground of everything. 
She's a formidable figure, and I think it would be to Keir Starmer's cost if he does try to marginalise her, to be honest. But, I mean, uh, Jerry, she has suffered a number of humiliations over her, what, three and a bit years as... Uh, uh, about three years, isn't it, as deputy leader? I mean, first of all, Starmer tried to demote her in 2021 and got rid of her as campaign coordinator and chairman, although then she got some other jobs in compensation. Uh, and the left's been on the retreat and, uh, you know, the trade unions are probably weaker than they've ever been in the, in the Labour Party. And then you saw the de- the deselection of her boyfriend, uh, Sam Tarry, from Tameside, where she's the MP, Lee Drennan, has been purged from the selection in, in Bolton North East. I mean, will there come a point, do you think, Jerry, where she just feels she has to resign because there's there's a limit to what you can take? I mean, oh God, who in politics doesn't suffer humiliations? I don't think we'd ever get through this life if we weren't all humiliated once in a while. And anyway, it keeps us all grounded, doesn't it, as well? I think it's um, it's a little bit good for us. Um, but I, look, I don't agree that all of those are humiliations. I don't think she was humiliated when Starmer tried to demote her. I was actually... Um, a speech that she was giving that day that she didn't she didn't know the reshuffle was going on and she rushed off and she came out with like 17 jobs i mean i think <laughs> that showed where her power lied um but I it also, also showed what starmer thought about it didn't it i mean clearly absolutely but i also don't think she's humiliated by the deselection of um sam tarry i'd be really cautious of um defining her success by that of her boyfriend and male partner um but i think what is fascinating is going to be to see what happens and whether she feels pushed out by the ascendancy of Rachel Reeves, actually, um, who is another very, very impressive performer. She went to Davos with Keir Starmer, obviously knows her stuff. There's obviously space for the both of them. But the question to me is, you know, whether Starmer starts to align himself a little bit more with Rachel Reeves. He heads more towards Downing Street as his potential chancellor she's more on his wing of the party probably more in line with his thinking um you know it just will she become more of a number two in terms of taking over from that deputy Rodwell? who knows probably not but i think we're gonna see quite a tussle there and that's going to be interesting as we head up to 2024 and of course andrew but because she's elect she was elected deputy leader separately from Keir Starmer she wasn't a what on his ticket like a you know an american vice president uh, she has her own uh, mandate in a way and it and it would be possible for her to leave the front bench or at least threaten to leave the front bench and carry on as deputy leader be be it in opposition or government yes yes it would theoretically i mean i don't think I mean, it's happened before i don't think she'll want to do that because i think she as i say i think she came into politics to achieve things i don't think she came into politics to sit on the back benches and and heckle and you know and be a thorn in the side of anybody. She wants to see things changed in this country, and she's got that drive about her. So I think she'll she'll stay in until she absolutely has to, or until will, she's forced out. Um, but will she get the changes she wants? I mean, there's going to be very little money. You know, it is a, it is a, a, from what we've seen of the Starmer regime. Yeah, it's very cautious, right. um, and uh, it, it could well be that she's hanging around for a year and. And nothing much happens. And there's nothing much to for, for working people or for trades unions I, from a Labour government. Well, I think if, if you look at what she's talking about, about workers' rights and employment rights, trade union rights, that doesn't cost anything. In fact, it might cost the private sector something because they have to cop off a bit more money. But if you want the proceeds of growth, which Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer and Johnny Reynolds are talk about a lot about Labour will deliver growth, unless that growth is shared with the working class communities that Angela Rayner represents – they're not going to vote Labour again because, you know, we saw with the, you know, in the years up to the banking crash, wonderful growth in the city, wonderful growth there. 
did all of it filter down? Certainly not afterwards either in the 15 years since. So I think that sort of thing, one, it doesn't cost anything to give people more rights at work. But it also is about making sure that growth is inclusive and, and does represent the sort of communities Anne Lorena comes from. She have allies in that fight because the trade unions will back her. A lot of people within the shadow cabinet will back that as well. There are other people on the soft left, I would say, of the party that are less allied to the parts of the Labour right that dominate probably the shadow cabinet now. Now, Jerry, we saw under um, Gordon Brown's premiership, Harriet Harman was the deputy leader of the Labour Party, but she wasn't made deputy prime minister. Do you think Angela Rayner is certain to be Deputy Prime Minister or might the same happen to her? No, I mean, I think the same could definitely happen. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, movement in the party in the ramp to 24 anyway. And look, obviously, it's not a guaranteed election win for Labour in 2024, but that is the way that the the cards seem to be falling at the moment. Um, What I think is fascinating is the kind of voter base that the party is building and how that will play into who gets what job. I mean, I think, you know, this is all public information. If you look below the line on the Times at the moment and what the commenters say, they are absolutely sick on the whole of the Tory government and I think are more willing than they have been in the past to give Labour a chance. And, you know, that's that's Times voters. Let's be clear, this is kind of centre-right people usually who, you know, the paper back to Rishi Sudak and that's that's where the paper is. I don't think that's a secret to anyone. So I think there is an opportunity there. What that means in terms of what the top team ends up looking like, I think is interesting. Will Starmer kind of consolidate that vote and try and hold on to it with with more kind of, you know, right of the party people? Or will he think that Eastman has to either pay lip service or, you know, genuinely engage the left of the party? And I think that and the strategy direction will really influence whether she keeps a top job, whether she gets a top job, what kind of cabinet position she might have. Um, I must admit, my personal opinion is that it would be quite stupid of him to sideline her. I personally would not want to make an enemy of Angela Rayner. I wouldn't want her on the warpath towards me, that's for sure. And I think, as we often see with these things, it's often better to have people inside the tent than outside of it. Given what happened with Harriet Harman, if uh, if she wasn't to become deputy prime minister, it might look pretty bad. It'd give give the impression that the only deputy ladies who become deputy prime minister under Labour are, are men. What do you think, Andrew? The the future holds. I mean, is might she be prime minister one day? I mean, after all, she's only what forty three in a few weeks' time. You know, still pretty young. I'm glad you said that because I'm forty three as well, Michael. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she. I mean, she's got you know, Keir Starmer's, I think, in his early sixties, isn't he? So I mean, you know, she's got another twenty years potentially. So yes, she definitely. There's plenty of time for her to do that. And you know, I think who knows what will happen at the next election. But assuming Labour wins, it's got to deliver in order to maintain that. At the moment, I would say this doesn't feel like the kind of enthusiasm that Blair had around him in the run-up to that election, it's almost like Labour's the passive receptacle of this. As Jerry said, you know, the public have turned against the Tories now. It almost feels set in stone that they're just not going to get their vote out at the but, next but election. The, the, well, what everybody says is but, that Labour hasn't yet but Labour hasn't, sealed the deal. Exactly. And therefore, I think 
I think it might well. I think it probably will win uh, in the next election. It certainly looks the most likely, but it has to deliver in order to retain that. It's not going to, it doesn't feel like it's going to win a landslide that will just glide for three sort of terms on afterwards. Who knows? It's, you know, it's very difficult to see the future. So if Labour doesn't deliver, then of course that could change things entirely. Um, and it, it's a real, uh, I think, conundrum for Keir Starmer. Does he play the sort of parliamentary politics of this or does he look out to the country of, look, can we consolidate our base? Because the big problem with New Labour is it lost a huge amount of its vote, which was kind of masked by the fact the Tories didn't get their act together until 2010. So you had, you know, the 2001 with William Hague and then 2005 with Michael Howard and Ian Duncan Smith in the middle there. They never looked like they were going to get into government, the Tories. Now, if the Tories do get their act together after that, they're going to find a much tougher thing. And if Labour disillusions its base again, it hasn't got that class loyalty that it once had in order to bank on. It needs to deliver uh, if it gets into government next time. So what are you arguing, that Angela Rayner is the possible beneficiary of um, Labour failing to deliver? No, I'm, I'm saying it's it's worth Keir Starmer's while keeping her on board and that agenda in order that it does deliver. But, you know, as I say, Angela Rayner's got another 20 years ahead of her in politics, potentially, possibly a bit more. So, you know, there's plenty of time for her to become leader and who knows what will happen 10 or 15 years down the line. And of course, Jerry, the, the pressure is on Labour next time to have a woman leader uh, after the fact that after the Conservatives have now had three and Labour still has had none. Yeah, I think it's pretty embarrassing. They shouldn't do it just because of this, but the Tories will continue to use it as a um, as a battering ram. I think for a party that is supposed to be you know be standing up for equality and and fairness, to have not elected a woman to lead them, I think is is pretty damaging. On the flip side. I'm not of the school of feminism that thinks that that means that, you know, uh, they have to elect a woman next time, but there are plenty of good women to pick from. There doesn't have to be a, you know, a a closed process. Um, There are plenty of women who could beat out plenty of the men in that party. Jerry Scott, Andrew Fisher, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. I think, though, that if Angela Rayner were to become Prime Minister, the biggest distinguishing feature wouldn't be that she was at last Labour's first female Prime Minister, but that she would be the first Prime Minister in almost a 100 years, not since Ramsay MacDonald in the 20s and 30s, who came from a genuinely very poor and working-class background. It would be an extraordinary feat at a time when people with such roots are becoming exceedingly rare in our public life. Mugshots was written and produced by Michael Crick and Jack Gerbertson. Additional research by Matilda Walters. Audio production by Robin Lieburn and me, Alex Reese. Music by Jay Bailey. The group editor for Podmasters is Andrew Harrison. Mugshots is a Podmasters production. <laughs>